there is an inevitable connection of certain truths. We talked about this in the Behold Your God study. And it is a, it's a real help to us to keep these before our mind and to use them in, as we approach the Christian life as individuals or as parents, church leaders. What a person thinks of God will always affect what they think of themselves. A very large and biblical view of God will always produce a small view of yourself. And likewise, a small and unworthy view of the deity will always be connected with an enlarged, inflated view of ourselves. What we think of God and what we think of ourselves will affect our view of sin, whether we see sin as primarily a thing that carries us to an unpleasant consequence as a destination, or whether we think of sin as a grievous offense against an infinite king of love. And what we think of sin is the product of what we think of ourselves and of God will affect what we think of salvation. What is salvation? What are we being saved from? And what is the life that flows from salvation? Now, these run in an order of cause and effect, and so they only go in one direction. You really get into trouble when you try to correct the last one in the line. If, If we Look at people and we say, well, you say you're a Christian, but you're not living like a Christian. And so you begin to shoot a barrage of attacks at them and say, this is how a Christian should live. This is what the Apostle Paul says. This is what John says. And, and ultimately, you realize that you're really you're aiming at the, at the dandelion head, but the roots remain unchanged. And even if you can get them, like with children... You can get your children to behave a certain way. You understand that in time, the same root system just produces more of those unlovely uh, fruit. So, because they're cause and effect, we have to start with who God is. And then that affects our view of self. And it works out into the way we live. But also, because it is a cause and effect order, you can trace behavior back to the roots. And so we can, in a sense, be a spiritually, we can be Sherlock Holmes, or we can be deductive thinkers. We say, because we see this type of life, we understand that this type of root must be growing there. And this is what God does with the life of a well-known, sad case, King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And that's where we'll be now, 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 15. And... Our topic now is really a warning. There is an inevitable consequence in the life that allows small views of God and large views of ourselves to remain unaltered. So we talked about Moses, we talked about Paul. God, who are you? God, I want to know you through your son, but what if, what if, what if you don't think that that's that significant, that you know God all that you need to know, and you just need to be told how to, how to live a better life, or how to reach the modern world, or what if you're only here because you're the kind of person that shows up to every church event, even if you're uninterested, you, you're loyal, and you show up. What if you feel that you know God well enough? And you don't intend to pursue a lifelong 
reacquaintance with him, ever clearer views, ever more affected by what you see of your God, then if you are determined to agree with passages but not change, to, to listen to sermons but not apply, then you will be a person who will harbor large views of yourself and small views of God. And when that is allowed in an individual or in a church, there is an inevitable outcome. It is an outcome that we might call a life of partial obedience. It's not an irreligious life. Because we don't like to say to God openly, no, I don't care what you have to say, I I don't mind rebelling against you. But it's the kind of life where we say to God, yes, 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 Lord. And then we offer him in part what we owe him in whole. Partial obedience is the life we offer to a God that in our eyes has become small and when we in our own eyes have become large. Now, let's look at this in the life of King Saul. And I want, what, what I want us to do is we're going to read through the entire chapter 15 with just stopping a couple times to point out what's happening. And then we'll draw some lessons and conclusions from that. It's a very simple account. So first, well, I'm in 1 Kings. It wouldn't, nearly be, it wouldn't be that simple if I read 1 Kings. <clears throat> All right, 1 Samuel, here we go. 1 Samuel Chapter 15, in verses 1 through 3, we find the prophet coming to Saul and explaining God's expectations of him. He has given Saul a stewardship, or he has entrusted Saul, not just with the throne of Israel, but with carrying out the plans of God that were spoken long before Saul was ever born. So look at verses 1 through 3. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy Israel all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So, let's just stop there. Saul's been been given the throne, and now Saul has a task. He is to carry the honor of God. Well, Where do we get that? Do you remember that in the book of Exodus, as the people of Israel are being brought through, the Amalekites attack them. And God said, because of what you've done, I will destroy you. Now, this is a long time later, and now Saul's king. And so God says to Saul, basically this, I'm giving you not only the throne of Israel, but I'm placing my honor in your hands. I am a God that that doesn't lie. And according to the integrity of my character, I will do what I say. And I told the Amalekites what would happen. And now you are to do what I said would be accomplished. So what is it? He is to utterly destroy the Amalekites. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Men, women, infants, nursing babies, children, animals. 
there to be wiped out. Well, that's the task that Saul's been given. And it really was not just a matter of Saul's happiness as a king. It was a matter of the integrity of the Lord and the honor of God. Because he had made great statements. Now, in verse 4 through 9, we find that Saul fails. And what he does is he does almost, almost all that God asks. But in reality, he offers God a partial obedience Let's read verses 4 through 9. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, now these are a people who lived among the Amalekites, but they were not Amalekites. Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag. And the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So there's the scene. Saul offers God a partial obedience. Doing almost everything God has requested. But in the end... Looking at what God has asked him to do, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Common sense says that there's no reason to kill King Agag. I suppose there's money behind sparing a king. There's a lot of sheep and oxen and lambs and things that could be put to better use than just destroying them. And so everything that's worthless we give to God and everything that's worth anything we spare. Now, verse 10 through verse 31, God sends the prophet Samuel again to King Saul And what God thinks of Saul's actions are revealed. Verse 10. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel. And he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul... It was told Samuel saying, Saul went to Carmel and indeed he has set up a monument for himself and he has gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Saul and said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord for I, Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord for I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, 
Were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord, and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please, pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. We'll stop there. Well, that's the account What are some of the lessons that we can learn from this life of Paul and the partial obedience? Partial obedience is a sin that the church is always tempted to become comfortable with. There are certain sins that we aren't tempted to become comfortable with. If people committed them, they would be very ashamed to show back up in church. But there are sins which are, if we're careless, they become acceptable sins. And partial obedience is one of them. You probably would be surprised if your pastor showed up on your porch and talked to you next week and said, I'm really concerned about your partial obedience. You seem to be stopping short. Now, if you were committing adultery and you'd been caught, you might expect to see your pastor. But for partial obedience? Partial obedience is the kind of sin that can live in a religious person's life And never be known. It is a subtle sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. All sin is subtle in the sense that all sin 
carries with it a false advertisement. Every sin has a billboard attached to it, and the billboard is a lie. It says that the sin is something that it isn't, that it'll make you happy, that it'll help you, that it's not that bad, that you don't need to be concerned about it. Whatever the false advertisement, if you, when you look at sin itself, it always carries with itself uh, a false advertisement. But also, on top of that, partial obedience is a sin that hides itself behind some obedience. So it's not like a sin of adultery or, or these other sins. It's a sin that hides itself behind a great deal of good, a, a lot of obedience, but just not full obedience. So what I want us to do is to look at this passage and to answer two important questions. One is, what is the real nature of partial obedience? If I am giving God in part what I owe Him in whole, how serious is that? What is it really? Can I see partial obedience in its true light? And this passage will help us. Second, what is the ultimate root system of all partial obedience in church? Well, let's take the first question. What is the real nature of partial obedience? How can I see it in its true light and not in its false advertising? Well, there are three things I want us to notice. We can look at it and understand this, the, the nature of it by looking at the seriousness of how God responds to this. There are the consequences. And that certainly shows us the seriousness. What were the consequences of Saul's disobedience? Now, you think about it. Let's not be too harsh on Saul. Saul is a new king. He's not so sure, perhaps, that everybody in the nation is happy about him being king. There was a little struggle at the beginning. And now he's an established king, and God says to him, I want you to go over to the Amalekites, and I want you to kill every one of them and all their livestock. I don't want you to take any spoil. So here's a war that you're going to go. You're going to risk your life. You're going to risk the life of your people, and you're getting nothing for it. The only benefit is that God will be honored, and his integrity will be upheld in front of the world, and so Saul says to the people, okay, we need to gather an army. What for? Well, we're going to go kill the Amalekites, but they're no problem to us right now, but God wants us to, and, and also you're not allowed to have any of the spoils, and so Saul leads the people over there, and they do keep the spoils. They keep the very best things. How big of a deal is it that Saul has failed to do exactly what God has told him to do. After all, he says to Samuel here, I did go on this mission. I did kill the Amalekites. I did everything you asked, except, well, we did keep Agag, the king, alive, and we have kept some of the things, but we're going to use them in the church service. What are the consequences? Well, the first consequence is obvious, isn't it? That Saul loses the kingdom. If you cannot be trusted to do what God has told you to do, then don't be surprised if God removes from you the task that he's placed in your hands. Now, it's a terrifying thing for church leaders. But I think it's a much more terrifying thing for Christian parents. I have an opportunity to raise my children. I have an opportunity to point them to the Lord. I mean, they hear their dad talk all the time in church. I feel sorry for him, you know. But at home, what am I? Now, what if I am happy with partial obedience? I'm not saying, what if I'm imperfect, because I know I'm imperfect, but what if I'm just okay with that? Like, well, God, I, 
I know there are things that you require of a believer, and I'm only interested in giving you part of those. And my children watch my life. What if one of the consequences is I'm not the kind of guy that God can trust with those children, and so as they get older, someone else has to point them to the Lord because their dad was a hypocrite. How many pastors' children despise the gospel because they know their dad? We don't want God to say to us, I have taken the task of pointing your children to the Lord, and I'll give it to someone else, someone in college, some other teacher in the church, because you offer me a partial obedience. He loses the task. Second, and more importantly, God is made to look like a liar to anyone who's looking. He promises to the Amalekites, the consequence of of your choices will be this. And then when it comes time, Saul doesn't do what he says. And so the whole world that's watching doesn't say to themselves, you know, God is a God of absolute integrity. But Saul, Saul's the one that failed. They, They don't do their theology like that. They just look and say, well, the God of Israel said this, but obviously it's not what happened. Can we really believe what the God of Israel says? I mean, if they can't believe what he says about his threats, is there any reason to believe what he says about the gospel? The good news of a coming Messiah. So, God has been dishonored. That's the consequence. And that shows us the seriousness of a partial obedience. But let me give you another. How God describes this act in comparison with how Saul describes it shows us the seriousness. First thing he does is he meets Samuel and he says what? Well, blessed of the Lord, it's a great day. I did everything you asked. I think Saul believes that in his own way. I think Saul's understanding of spiritual things, which we're going to look at in a moment, is so jaded and twisted that he thinks, hey, I mean, I did what you asked me to do. But then when he's pressed by the statement, what are the sheep I'm listening to then? Where do the... Those oxen come from. Then he says, well, I did most of it. Then he goes to, well, the people, they're the ones that didn't obey. Then finally, when he's pressed into a corner, he says, I have sinned, I've transgressed. But now go with me and let me and come with me to serve the Lord. Now, I want you to notice that, that passage uh, in verse 30. I have sinned, yet honor me now. What a sad statement. The man that God has chosen to be the king, his hand-picked man, just like David later, the hand-picked man of God, when he's confronted with his sin, how different he is from David. When David's confronted, he breaks his heart and there is real repentance. When Saul is confronted, he says, okay, well, fine, fine, I have sinned, but honor me now. Saul is concerned that when he goes to the, before the princes and elders of, of Israel, that he has the, the man of God's approval. See, I'm still a good guy. I'm still God's man. Here's the preacher right beside me. All Saul is worried about in his repentance is avoiding the consequences of his sin. Think about ourselves. You have been chosen as a Christian. Chosen by God. It's astonishing. You have been chosen for a purpose. And that purpose was not heaven primarily. 
you have been chosen to be brought to God, to live unto God. And Ephesians says you will be an everlasting monument of the riches of His mercy toward you in His kindness. So forever and ever in heaven, all the beings of heaven will look upon the body of Christ there and say, we see something of the riches of His grace in the way He is kind to those people. And you have been given a stewardship and a mission, just like the King Saul. You are to kill, not Agag, and animals, and children, and women, and men. You are to kill sin. You are to mortify the old life. You are to put to death the old way of thinking, the old way of desiring, the old way of choosing. God has declared an unending war as long as we're on this planet, between you and sin. And he has made promises that anyone can read, who can read can read about in the Scripture. He's made great promises about what he's going to do to sin through the work of redemption. So every Christian is entrusted with the task of carrying out what God has said he would do. Every unchristlike thought is to be put to death. Every unchristlike attitude is to be brought to the cross. Every unchristlike desire, every unchristlike word, every unchristlike response, every unchristlike intention, all of it, all of it is to be put to death. If you think God is not serious about you putting every sin to death, all you have to do is go read 1 Samuel 15 and see how seriously he takes sin. When he says to King Saul, you're going to put to death the Amalekites, don't be deceived here. Every man, every woman, every child, every nursing infant, how severe God is at times, shocks us. If you don't believe that God intends to put every sin under the foot of Jesus Christ in your life, look at the cross, how severe God is with sin When we wake up this morning, if our attitude is, I intend to give God most of what He desires, but there are some areas in my life that I intend to protect against the work of the Holy Spirit and sanctifying me, and I draw a line and say to Him, you can have all of that out there, but don't step across this line. Don't come into this room. The door's locked. That's where I give sanctuary to my favorite sins. If you intend to give Him partial obedience... Remember what 1 Samuel said. Every child, every nursing infant, nothing, nothing in the old life is given sanctuary. The goal is complete transformation into the image of Christ. Anything less than that is willful, partial obedience. Think of what the Bible tells us about the Christian life. Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Listen to what Paul says. He, that is Christ, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every... Now, listen, when I read that passage, I automatically think when he says he's going to redeem us from, I think, hell and judgment and guilt and shame. But instead, Paul says this, he's going to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Every lawless deed, everyone. Zealous for good works, yes. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, 
Paul writes, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. The little word chosen, our word elect. What's the difference between someone who's elected and someone who's a candidate? I mean, we have political races all the time. If someone is a candidate and someone has been elected, there's a difference, isn't there? A candidate, all the way up to the election, still has the option of saying, no, forget it, I'm folding it up, I'm going back home and living a normal life, I don't want to be president. But when you're elected, you're not allowed to just do that. You have a responsibility now. Do you think that you're a candidate for holiness, Christian? Or are you elect? Isn't it a thrilling thought, a comforting and strengthening thought, that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you don't feel so holy, you can go to God and say, I am not a candidate for holiness. I don't know why you love me, but you have loved me and you've drawn me to yourself through your son and you have elected me for holiness. So it's not an option, Father. Do what must be done that I would be transformed. What happens? Well, if we're not careful, like King Saul, we pick and choose which sins we want to deal with. Which ones do you leave alone and which ones do you give up? I have found that we tend to give up the worthless sins or the ones that aren't big matters to us or the ones that aren't very costless. Saul gave a lot of animals over to the sword and he killed everyone except for Agag. Now that's a lot of obedience. But what he did was he gave up everyone that was worthless to him. Do you give God, do you give Jesus Christ the worthless old sins? But not the ones that are costly? The embarrassing sins, do you put those to death but not the ones that aren't embarrassing? There are some sins that we hate even when we're lost people because they are humiliating to us. We don't hate them because they're against God. We hate them because they're destroying us. Do you give the embarrassing sins up? What about the external sins? If I could turn you inside out and what you are on the inside and the thoughts you think on the inside and the responses you feel on the inside when someone's not treating you the right way. If I could turn you inside out and you were to walk into church inside out and everyone could see what you are on the inside, would you ever leave your bedroom? Would you ever leave your house? If God plastered on a big screen behind us on Sunday morning your sinful thoughts, the wretched things that can come into your mind, things that you've let stay in your mind, Would you ever enter this building if you knew that when you walked through those back doors, what you are on the inside was up here? No one, no one would be your friend if they knew you like God knew you. Samuel Rutherford, the Puritan in prison for preaching the gospel, said, if men knew me on the inside, I wouldn't be able to find one man in all Scotland who would bid me good morning. Are you willing to give up external sins because you don't want to be humiliated, but you keep the internal ones that you think that no one knows about? 
We say to God, well, we say to people when, when they say to us, how are you doing? We say, oh, I'm, I'm doing well. Doing, yeah, good week, good week. But God might not say that. What if God says to us this question? If you're doing so well as a Christian, then what is this I hear, the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? If you say, no, we have, a, we have a great marriage. What if God says to you, then what is this I see? We have a good church. What is this I hear? There are so many things that you are knowingly keeping to yourself. You are offering me a partial obedience. Now, we have to remember that like with Saul, this whole issue of obedience is not really about our happiness and you finding your fulfillment in Christ and reaching your potential It's really about God's honor. He has made some great boasts. He said some things that are really hard to believe. Let me just take one of them in the new covenant. When my son comes, you will name him Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. Yeshua, Joshua, like the Old Testament, Joshua brought his people out from Egypt. I mean, out out of the, um, the wandering into the new land Christ will be a Joshua to us, a great military captain. He will conquer the land. He will deal with our sins. He will rescue us from our sins. Now, that's the name of Jesus. Christian, clearly our task is to walk with the Lord in such a way that all sin is being progressively placed under the feet of Christ. But what if we decide that we've gone far enough and a partial obedience is enough? then everyone who knows that we call ourselves a Christian looks at us and if they read that Bible verse, they can say to themselves, I don't think that this Jesus fellow is so impressive. He's named with a name that means he'll save his people from their sins, but every Christian I know seems to be just fine with certain sins. Do you see how giving God partial obedience robs him of the glory due to him? Just like Paul's, uh, Saul's partial obedience robbed God of the glory due to him. Now, if you don't think you're okay with partial obedience, you say, well, that's not my problem. I know I'm not perfect, but I am determined to be fully obedient. Let me ask you, do you ever say this to anyone who points out something in you? Or do you say it to yourself when your conscience is a little bothered by the way you've been living? Do you say to yourself this? Well, I know I shouldn't, but at least I don't. I mean, it just, it's partial obedience. Well, God, I know, but, well, but at least I don't do this. What does the Lord say about obedience? James chapter 2, verse 10, whoever will keep the whole law and yet he stumbles in one point, he's guilty of all. Or James chapter 4, verse 17, to, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's a sin. So let's ask ourselves, is there any area of partial obedience that we are willingly, knowingly protecting against God? Search your heart. Is there an area now that even now when we're thinking about that, even when you try to shut the door and say, I don't want to talk about that, God, you know that at the door of your heart there is an answer, there is an area, there is something that God has been pointing out to you and you're telling Him no. Now, let's be careful. Common sense often promotes partial obedience in a life. What was Saul before he was a king? Fighter pilot? What was he? He was a farmer. 
Saul knows the value of camels and donkeys and oxen and sheep. And when you've destroyed an entire nation and all the livestock of this agricultural nation comes over to you and you're a farmer by trade, well, we don't throw away the worthless ones. That just doesn't make sense. It seems to go against all common sense to obey God here, and yet God expects him to obey. Will you stop obeying Jesus Christ where it stops appearing sensible? Can you read the 11th chapter of Hebrews and see how unsensible it looks? How nonsensical, how they just seem, these men and women in that chapter, to continue to make decisions that just go against common sense? But they do obey because it's what the Lord tells them to do. Another thing we notice here that with partial obedience, it's not just common sense at times, but it's also a fear of people. When your view of God is little, your fear of people is always going to be, your view of people is always going to be big. But don't fool yourself. It's not because you love people. It's because you love yourself. Why do we fear people? Why do we care what people think? It's not because we love people. It's because we love me. And I don't want people to think wrongly of me. You ever notice that there is a culturally acceptable level of obedience in every church? Now, they can all be very different. You could go to one church where cigarette smoking is just fine, and so all the deacons after the service go out and stand behind the church and smoke cigarettes. But then you might go to the next church, and cigarette smoking is about the whole, most horrible thing you can think of, and if you went outside that church and smoked a cigarette after the service, everyone would just stare at you and whisper and talk about you all during the week. So I don't know where the level of obedience is for this church. What's acceptable? But for every church, there is an acceptable level of obedience. And there are times when following Jesus Christ crosses the path and you're a little more obedient than people are comfortable with. And even your Christian friends may discourage you. Will you offer God a partial obedience when people that you love don't understand? Will you stop with what's accepted by men? Really, the question we're asking ourselves is, how far are we going to go? Are you intending to go all the way in Christ-likeness, or is there a magical place that you think that will be far enough? Because when you set off on a journey, the, the destination of the journey really affects how you journey, doesn't it? If I get in the car and I'm going to Walmart, do you have Walmart around here? We have Walmart. I live at Walmart. I own Walmart. I, every day of the week except Sunday, I'm at Walmart. I can't understand how we can need Walmart so much. I don't understand how my wife and I plan it so carefully that every day I'm at Walmart. I tell her, we could give Walmart a break today. When I jump in my car, I'm seven miles away from Walmart And it affects the way I dress and what I grab and how I drive and which road I take. The destination affects everything. But when when I'm going to Kansas, I don't dress and pack and think and journey the same way. It's totally different. If in your mind you have an unspoken place that this is far enough as a Christian, it will affect everything about how you read the Bible, how you pray, how you worship. But if your determination is, because God is worthy, I will give him. 
I will not reach this destination here. I will not be perfectly sinless. But I will aim at the complete, complete consecration of my life to Jesus Christ. It affects how you journey. The seriousness of this sin. What about the subtleness of it? Saul says, I've done what you told me, Lord. Verse 13. And I think that Saul probably thought that. Well, I've done it. I've done enough of it. I think God's pleased. Do you know one of the really terrifying things about partial obedience is that you can choose to be partially obedient and never know it. Because you do nine out of ten things, you don't notice that you're still telling God no on the tenth thing. But everyone around you hears the sheep eventually. It will be exposed. And you can live an entire life in religion offering God part of what you owe him and dishonor your king all this time and think that you're really doing well. Partial obedience is always impressive in its appearance. But it is defective in real performance. And one day the Lord will ask us in some fashion, so what are the sheep that I'm hearing if you're so obedient? What are the cattle? The third thing that helps us see partial obedience in its true light, not just the sinfulness and the subtleness of it or the seriousness and the subtleness, but number three is the sinfulness. So serious. Subtle, sinful. I don't normally do all S's, but maybe it'll help us to remember. In verse 23, look at what we read. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Stubbornness is like iniquity and idolatry. And this is the way God describes it. Saul says, I did pretty good. I did most of what you said. God says, no, Saul. What you're more, in my eyes, what you've done is more like witchcraft, iniquity, and idolatry. How is partial obedience like witchcraft, iniquity, and idolatry? How is your partial obedience like witchcraft, iniquity, and idolatry? I mean, let's just ask ourselves, are you a church that is toying with witchcraft? I mean, who would attend church if the pastor next week got up and taught you witchcraft and did a little, talked about Satanism and drew some symbols for you and said... We're going to use this for the kingdom. Well, the church will be emptied or he'd be gone. But you know, churches practice witchcraft all the time, according to 1 Samuel 15. What about iniquity? What about idolatry? No one would attend the church if Pastor Tony set up a golden calf here next week. How do we understand what he's saying? Well, let's be careful here. We think that partial obedience is not that big of a deal. God says it's like these three things. Witchcraft. Now, I think that one thing we see when he, when he describes these things, the partial obedience with these three words, I think one thing that we have to understand is he's saying it is extremely offensive to God for you to offer him almost all but hold back part. Because we tend to think that almost all is much better than nothing. And so my partial obedience... God is probably okay with that compared to the lost man who never comes to church and doesn't offer God anything. So God has to point out, no, I'm not happy with partial obedience. I'm not almost as happy as I would be with full obedience. I see it as witchcraft and iniquity and idolatry. 
But I don't think that's all that God is saying here because he uses these specific words. And if we get under the surface of partial obedience, we see that indeed it is a form of witchcraft and iniquity and idolatry. But how? Witchcraft. We have a kind of very modern view of witchcraft, but what was the ancient world's view of witchcraft? Witchcraft was, all right, not hocus pocus and a cauldron and, and uh, Harry Potter. Witchcraft was you would go to a witch and they would be kind of, um, kind of like a palm reader or a diviner. They would be a person who said that I have a, ways of getting in touch with the spiritual world and if you pay the right money, we'll, I'll give you, you remember in the New Testament, the scrolls. And so we give you these magic scrolls with these chants on them. Now the whole, the whole reason for witchcraft in the ancient world was if you have the right formulas, you can manipulate the spiritual world, the gods, the spirits, and they will do what you want. They'll bless you, bless your crops, bless your family. So what is witchcraft, all right? It is an attempt to manipulate the spiritual world or an attempt to manipulate God or gods. How is partial obedience like witchcraft? It's like it. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's like it. Where are they similar? Here's where they're similar. Partial obedience is where you give God a lot so as to influence Him, to bless you, but you are not interested in really living for Him. Saul did a lot that God said and expected that God was going to be on Team Saul. We offer God a lot of sacrifices. We offer Him a lot of good things. Not wanting to be fully obedient. Not wanting to be under His control. But we're willing to give Him a whole lot in religion so that He'll be a useful God for us. We are trying to manipulate God by giving things to Him. Service. Evangelism. Tithing. Praying. Singing. Worshiping reading my Bible, becoming the pastor of a church, visiting the sick, being a great church member. But I'm doing all of this instead of out of love for God and gratitude for what He's done, desiring to be fully obedient. I'm giving Him these things so I can manipulate Him and get this from Him, but I'm not handing over the life to God where He gets to call the shots. You know, with sacrificial giving in whatever area of the life, you know, one thing about sacrificial giving is you're still in charge of it. And you get to say how much and when and where. It's very different than saying, I will give a lot of life to you, God. It's very different to say that and to say to God, I will give me to you. You can just have me. Everything that goes along with me. Witchcraft is trying to manipulate God by offering him a lot. Are you toying around with witchcraft at Trinity Church? What about iniquity? Iniquity is twisting and spoiling something that's good, so God gives something good. Like we think of sexuality is, is often in the Bible, the abuse of sexuality is called iniquity. Sex has its place. It's a gift of God. It's good. Of course, lust and other sins twist what's good and ruin it. Saul has been given such mercy and such distinguishing privileges by the Lord God. 
And he uses those privileges as an excuse to think that he doesn't have to obey God all the way. We can do that. Partial obedience is taking all those great grace words and saying to God, By the way, God, in case you've forgotten, we're saved by grace. So I'm going to offer you part of what you request in whole. So you take something beautiful, love of God, and you bend it and twist it and turn it into a tool for something dishonoring to God. It's iniquitous. You can ask yourself a very revealing question. Do you, when you think of the full mercy of God, that every sin, past, present, and future has been paid for by Jesus Christ and you will never be condemned for any of those sins if you really are His, does that make you want to live more for yourself? Or does that make you want to put to death every filthy, stinking sin that would rise up against Christ in your heart? The hypocrite is thrilled with the doctrines of grace as long as it means he gets to have more for himself. But the believer is filled with, is filled with joy over the doctrines of grace and it makes him want to live completely for the Lord. Iniquity. It twists the beautiful grace of God and makes it a tool for sin. Third, idolatry. Saul thinks it's a small matter to give God, the king of heaven and earth, part of what he owes him in whole. And he thinks that because his views of God are so twisted and small that he thinks that God ought to be pleased with doing most. The only way to offer God part of what we owe him and to be happy with that is to cultivate an idolatrously low view of God so that you think that that's all he really can ask for. He ought to be satisfied with that. There are people who profess to be Christians that if they show up to church every Sunday morning, God must just be thrilled to get that much because that, even that's a little more than he can rightly expect. When we have a right view of God from the scripture, we think that every Sunday morning and every moment of every day is the least we could offer him. Now, let me ask you, is there any hope for a person that sees partial obedience in their life? Well, there is. And there's even hope in this passage. Look at verse 30. Let me see, 32. Then, uh, sorry, verse, yes, verse 32. Then Samuel said, okay, he's told the king, you've lost the kingdom. Then he says to him something. There's something still not finished here, isn't there? Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, to me, the preacher says. So Agag came to him cautiously. And Agag said, Um, surely, surely the bitterness of the death is past, of death is past, and Samuel says, as your sword made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women, and Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. The story doesn't stop with God disciplining Saul. The story stops with Saul's 
dropping God's name in the dirt, dropping the honor of God because he's a man-fearer and he has such an inadequate view of God. But it, then there's another man, Samuel, who does know God and he picks up the honor of God. But how does he do it? He asks the king to bring the other king in front of him. Agag says, surely we're going to let the past be past. I mean, the king's okay with me. Israel's okay with me. I don't imagine the preacher's going to have a big problem with this. And can you imagine the scene that Samuel gets a man's sword? He's a preacher, all right? It's, it's not a glorified violence. He doesn't just run Agag through. He hacks him in pieces in front of everyone. Can you imagine the scene? There's King Saul. He's told Agag things are okay. There's the soldiers. There's the people of Israel. They've told Agag by their actions, things are all right. We're not going to remember what you did. And the preacher hacks him in pieces. Can you imagine the shock, the horror on the people's faces as Agag chops and chops at this man's corpse? And God's name is exalted as one who keeps his word. That's a horrific scene. For us, there's a much more encouraging scene. We all, by nature, have not upheld the honor of the Lord. But Jesus of Nazareth has interceded and he has picked up the name of the Father. The law has been honored It's not been set aside, it's been satisfied. And all the world that wants to know what kind of a God there really is, it can look to one man and know exactly how honest our God is, what integrity he has. He has fully dealt with sin. Now, let me ask us really to consider one more thing. That's what partial obedience is, but where does it come from? Look at verse 17. If we don't get this, it won't really help us. Samuel said to Saul, after he says, I'm going to tell you what God said to me. And Saul says, well, speak on. Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now, what's the implication? Saul, I remember when we first met. And I told you that God would make you the king. And you had a hard time believing it. Why? Because you didn't think very much of yourself. You were little in your own eyes. And God was big. Remember the connection of those truths. You cannot have a high view of God and a big view of yourself at the same time. If you have a low view of God, you will always have an inflated view of yourself. It always is connected in that way. So Samuel says, I remember. I remember when you were little in your own eyes. When God was big. But now that you're king, something's changed. You're no longer little in your own eyes. And by virtue of that, we have to understand God is no longer big in your eyes. God has grown small in the eyes of King Saul as God has exalted him. He's become proud. He forgets who exalted him. The only way to explain all of Saul's actions in chapter 15, from his sin to his justifying his sin, blaming other people, even to saying, okay, I've sinned, but hey, but honor me now. The only way to explain this is Saul has grown big in his own eyes and God has grown small. 
To violate the will of a small God is a small matter to King Saul. To attempt to manipulate this small God by giving him a whole lot of sacrifices and things is a, it's a small matter in the eyes of King Saul. To attempt to adjust God to fit Saul's preferences so that God ought to be satisfied with what I've offered him. In my opinion, he would be. It's a small matter to adjust God, to make an idle version of God in your mind. Are we okay with partial obedience? What about us? What if God were to say to you, when I saved you from your wretched, empty life, you were small in your own eyes. Weren't we all small at conversion? God, I have nothing to give you. God, even my goodness is stained, my righteousness, my hope in the world to make me happy, my confidence in my own ability, they've all been ripped away from me. I'm like a naked beggar at the gates, and I don't know why you would love me because I fought against you all this time, but you have promised to receive men like me, women like me. God, I'm coming to you. All I have in my hands are the promises. You were so small when you came to Christ. Have you grown big? Have you gotten big? Have you grown up? Has God grown small? Well, the answer to that question is very simple. Are you offering Him partial obedience? And you're okay with that. Whereas when you first came to Christ, the idea of giving Him part was never an attraction to you. When we come to Christ and we receive the grace of Christ, in those early days of grace, we are so astonished. The thought of giving God only part of what we owe Him is the furthest thing from our mind. But we grow proud because of God's kindness to us. And we start to think that we made ourselves different than other people. And we're tempted to shrink God and enlarge ourselves and growing big, we become the center of our religion, the center of the whole world, and partial obedience is all that we think God can expect. Do you remember I said that common sense sometimes promotes partial obedience? Think about spiritual common sense. Can you be sinlessly perfect in this life? No, we don't believe you can. Why try then? Why not be satisfied to focus on the object of truth that God has loved us unconditionally and if there's still sin in your life, well, that's all right because every Christian still sins. The first church I pastored, there was a lady who was very kind to me but she would come up after the service every time and say to me, Butter John, I was Butter John back then, all right? <clears throat> Deep South. Butter John, we all sin, you're right. And then she'd walk out. Never change. So one time when she shook my hand at the end and said, Brother John, we all sin. We're all sinners. I held her hand and said, I'm waiting for you to tell me that you are a repentant sinner, a rescued sinner. It was the last time she, she talked to me after church. From that point on, she went out a different door. Is that us? Well, Lord, you know we're all sinners. And you spit back to God some theology of grace and total depravity and absolute dependence. And you think that that covers partial obedience? But this is the God that told us through Peter 
that everything you need for godliness has been given to you through Christ and through the gospel. Do not let spiritualized common sense and half of good theology prop up your partial obedience. The enemy, our enemy, Satan, is so good at using half of the Bible verses. Much better to be like Robert Murray McShane when he was in his 20s. He prayed, God, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be on earth. At age 20, when I was converted, I read McShane, uh, Benar's um, memoirs. And I read that prayer and I prayed that prayer and I meant it. But I want to tell you, that was 24 years ago. I still know that prayer, and I have prayed that since then. Make me as, as holy as a saved sinner can be on this earth. It is harder to pray it now than it was when I was 20. Because I am more aware of the cost of obedience than when I was 20. And I am more aware of the depth of my sin than I was at age 20. And I... I'm telling you, I don't always want that prayer to be answered. I'm afraid that God will hear that prayer and do it sometimes. So what's the cure to that? The cure is not to get a book on sanctification and bolster up my courage. The cure is to do what we've been talking about. God, the only reason I wouldn't want to be fully consecrated to you is because my view of you must have become little and I must be getting big in my own eyes. So Lord, how are we going to deal with this? Like Moses, we're going to go to him and say to him, who are you? Say it again. Tell me again. Or like Paul, I will count everything lost to grow in my awareness of him, to live on the fullness of Christ. Or like Samuel, God, show me who you are until I'm so captivated by who you are that if no one else will, I'll pick up the sword and I will hack the old life to pieces if I have to. But I will not willingly offer you a partial obedience. I want to adorn the gospel, as Paul said for us to do, by offering you all of what you require. Let's pray. Our Father, we find a Saul living in every one of our hearts. That coward, that self-serving, self-justifying, common sense coward who only is concerned to give you the easy sins, the embarrassing and external and destructive things. But Lord, we want to be like Samuel. We want to be like the Apostle Paul. We want to be like Moses. We want to know you as you really are and find all of life transformed and partial obedience to be so distasteful to us because once again, we are small and you have become large in our own eyes. God, we pray that you would do this for the glory of your Son in our community, in our homes. We ask it in his name. Amen.